So we are taking a break from Samuel, and what we're going to do since today is the first Sunday of Advent, followed then obviously by Christmas. I know not everyone does the liturgical calendar, but the purpose of the liturgical calendar is for us to occasionally pause and consider um, some some grander themes uh, in the life of Christ. That's what the church year is all about. So Advent, we stop and we think about that long period of time where people were waiting for the Lord to come. Um, we, we, I think, take for granted the fact that we know that the Lord has already come. <laughs> he has already won. He's already here with us. Uh, but for many thousands of years, the, the saints of God, the household of God, the church was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. So it's good for us to consider some old things and, and, and the glorious truth that we all have come to know. So what I was going to do is actually in six verses over the next six weeks, explain the whole Bible in six verses. Now, I find this very helpful because when you go to explain the, the gospel to people, it's helpful to have, you know, a, a framework to, to work from. And so what I want to do is equip you guys. Not only do I want to encourage your faith, I would like you to be able to open your Bibles and from these six verses pull in all of Scripture. Um, it was said of C.S. Lewis that when he talked about anything, you knew what he thought about everything. Um, and in my opinion, these six verses are that. If you, read, if you understand these six verses, you understand the entire Bible. So today what we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, as they say in the Latin church. <laughs> but before we do that, let us pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for Christ and his ministry. We thank you, Lord, for his conquering uh, Satan, sin, and death. We thank you, Lord, for his tearing down the old household Lord, that we uh, were all slaves to. We thank you for this time of the year for us to remember all the glorious promises that you made to your people that you fulfilled in your son. We pray, Lord, as we open your word now that you would comfort and strengthen us, convict us, Lord God, and give us hope. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and amen. Now, I'm not going to read all of Genesis 3. Hopefully many of us know Genesis 3. If you don't know Genesis 3, please go home and read Genesis 3. But in, in a nutshell, what you have is Adam and Eve gloriously in the garden, naked, unashamed, eating fruit together as we were all meant to do. And then a snake comes, and the snake comes and starts asking questions. And the question is, don't you want to be like God? Why is God holding out on you? Don't you want to be like him? If you ate this fruit that he refused to give you, you would be like him. And Eve says, well, we aren't allowed to eat it. We're not even allowed to touch it, which isn't what God said. He did not say, don't touch it. And um, she gets sucked into this. Well, lo and behold, who's there the whole time? Adam. And Adam, uh, what I like to do, he, he, he does the very first science experiment. What is going to happen if she eats that apple we were told not to? Because, you know, she did come from a rib. I've got other ribs. Perhaps God could just make me a new one. And so he, he lets it happen. You know what happens? Nothing. So he takes it and he eats it. And that's when mankind fell. So then God comes looking for him. And he can't find him because he's hiding. And he calls him forward. And he realizes very quickly what he, right, right, that Adam understands he has fallen. He is now ashamed of himself. He's now hiding. And so God uh, calls forth man and Eve and gets a confession of their sin. He does not get a confession of sin from Satan. And he then starts handing out punishments. And then he has to kill animals and cover them. And then he has to cast them out of the garden because the last thing you want are fallen people eating the tree of life and living forever. We call them vampires. God did not want them to be vampires, so he cast them out. 
So that's what's happened. So in the middle of all of this, a major theme is God's judgment tempered by grace. Why doesn't God come down out of heaven, bury them in the ground, and start over? Why doesn't he just do that? I would have. I'd be like, I made him once, I can make him again. We see God's grace after the fall when God pursues Adam. He comes to find him. He puts enmity between the serpent and the woman. He promises her children, though they will be born in pain. He promises them food, though they will have to gain it through toil. He makes garments for them by having to kill an animal. So through the whole story, what you see is, is, is blessing and cursing. You see judgment and you see grace. That is the theme of Genesis 2, judgment and grace. Now, what's important is to think about who were the first people to ever read this story. Well, the, the first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. Moses wrote them. And so his audience was who? Who was his, the first people to take up these scrolls and read them? The narrative is intended for post-Exodus Israel. Now, Moses begins in Genesis 2-4, this account. He says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. He's now going to, to preach a sermon to the people of God about what happened in the very beginning. Now, he seeks to answer this question, what happened to God's good creation? Right? And think about the people he's writing this to. The Israel that first received this message had experienced what? Slavery in Egypt, hard labor from dawn to dusk, no freedom to worship God. Their baby boys were all drowned in the River Nile. So the Israel that first received this message of Genesis 3 were a people that knew all about suffering and sin. They understood slavery. And, and they had questions. Why is it that the people of God, right, the, the children of promise, why is it that we are living in this broken world? Then they, um, after they were delivered, right, after the Exodus, what happened to them then? Was it all easy, downhill, walking into the promised land? Not even slightly. Followed after their deliverance from Egypt, they, there came a terrible journey through the desert, a burning sun, agonizing thirst, lethal snakes that po were poisoned and bit them and they died. In the desert, every Israelite who had left Egypt died there except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. So they were delivered from slavery for what? To leave a trail of tears, a trail of graves through the desert. Certainly, these people want to know, what happened? How did we end up in such a state? What happened to God's good creation? Why is life so hard? Why all the suffering? Why all the pain? Who will deliver us from this body of death? Now, one of Moses' goals is more than teaching Israel about the origin of the brokenness of life. Given Israel's painful circumstances after the desert journey and again later during the exile, the, the, because the books of Moses were written by Moses, but they were compiled and edited by the prophets, and the prophets had the same problem. They had a bunch of people who were cast out of the land, and, and they were uh, delivering these books, holding on to these books to instruct the people of God, Israel, why they live in a broken world. Because isn't that what everyone wants to know? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with this world? Why can't it be easier? Why can't it be safer? Why can't it be more pleasant? Why did Moses wish to teach suffering Israel that the Lord, in banishing his rebellious creatures from his presence in paradise, still extended grace to them? Because they themselves were banished from his presence. They were cast out of the land. They were wandering in deserts. They were cast out of the land in exile. They had lost the temple. They had lost the presence of the Lord. And, and what they needed to know was what every man needs to know. 
that God will judge the wicked, that God will judge those who sin against him. But in the midst of it is what? Grace and goodness, right? In the, in the garden, what was it? It was a garden of yes with the tree of no. Here you have the fall, and what do you have? You have just curses and condemnation, or do you have curses and judgment and blessing and promise? Redemptive history starts right after the fall with God cursing the serpent, declaring enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and holding out defeat for the serpent and victory for the seed of the woman. He says, you will be defeated, serpent. And he says to the woman, your generations will succeed. We see this struggle originating from the womb of Eve in Genesis 4, right? What's the very next story after the promise in Genesis 3.15? From the woman comes two sons, one a murderer, one a liar, and one a son of promise who's murdered. So right out of the gate, you see that the story is about these two warring families, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is what the whole Bible is about. You know, they, they often say of Plato that Plato is really the only philosophy. Everything after that is a footnote to Plato. I have that same opinion of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the Bible. Everything after that just sort of helps you understand what happened in Genesis. <laughs> this is the story. There are two warring families who hate one another. One of them is cursed. One of them is chosen. And the struggle between them is the struggle of redemptive history. Genesis traces the seed of the woman from Abel to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. Ten genealogies within Genesis guide the story. This is why. They tell you stories, and then they say, okay, well, here. Here's all the descendants of Esau. Here's all the descendants of Jacob. Here's all. They go back and forth, shifting between the sons of promise and the sons of cursing. The two warring families are the main characters throughout the book of Genesis and thus the whole Bible. Later, you see that other writers pick up this trail and trace it to King David and his seed. Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Seth, the son of Adam, on purpose. When the gospel authors sat down to tell us who Jesus was, they started in the garden. They started way back when, with Adam and Eve and said, look, this is a man we've been waiting for for a long time. And everyone in Israel would have understood this. They would say, oh, he's that guy. He's the guy that we've been waiting for that long. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a king. He's something more than that. Paul identifies Christ as the seed of Abraham, who received God's promises regarding the inheritance, Galatians 3.16. Jesus is the seed of the woman who will ultimately gain the victory over Satan. This is what the whole story is about. Now, Christian tradition, (coughs) excuse me, refers to Genesis 3.15, as I said, the proto-evangelium, the proto-gospel. It's the first gospel declaration. Uh, Moses, there he is, writing it. The first person to declare the gospel is God himself, and it comes amidst his judgment on sin and death. Now, in the veiled revelation of Moses, the promise of a greater son, who wouldn't just deliver them from earthly slavery, but spiritual slavery, was good news. That is what that is what man needed in order to go out and continue to live, right? What, we all need hope. Without hope, it's meaningless, right? As soon as our hope is gone, we, we can't even live. And so God doesn't just, right, yell at his son, curse him, curse the, the serpent, curse the ground, yell, 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 and send him out. That's never the way a good father treats his children when he's disciplining them. He gives them the discipline, and he gives them hope. He, he, he establishes them in something stronger than themselves to go out and to live faithfully. And this is what God does. He preaches the gospel for the first time, and the first person who heard, hears it is Adam. Now, what does that tell us about the overarching story of the Bible? 
right? Is, <laughs> God was never caught off guard. He, it was never out of his control. He always knew where it was going, and he knew how it was going to get there. This is the proto-evangelism, uh, proto-evangelium, the proto-gospel. It's easier to say in English. This is the first gospel proclamation. Now, humans cannot get themselves out of the horrible predicament of sin and alienation from God that they have put themselves into. Indeed, all those who descended from Adam and Eve not only sin, they love to sin. Now, this is, this is something that I think we all need to readily admit to ourselves a little more than we do. It's not, it's not as if sin has happened to us and, oh, my gosh, I, I really hate it. You're supposed to hate it, but you really don't. Okay? Um, a large portion of my counseling is convincing people they don't really hate what they're doing as much as they think they do. <laughs> right? and, and, and it makes it easier to stop doing it if you actually learn how to hate it. Learning how to hate sin is something that all Christians need to learn. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through, through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even, though, even over those whose sinning was not at all like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so it's not, it's not like, oh, I, I, I didn't know about sin until the law came. Oh, you know, I didn't do Adam's sin. You, you had plenty of your own sins. Okay, this is what I'm always trying to con- convince my sons of and myself. If I was there in the garden, I wouldn't even have lasted as long as Adam. Okay, it wouldn't even, you wouldn't even have to come at me through my wife. God would have left and I'd been like, where's that fruit he said not to eat? Right? God would have turned his back and then you would have heard nothing but the sound of chomping. We don't just sin. We love it. We love to feed the flesh. We love to do whatever we want. We love autonomy. All of mankind is stuck in this position. Okay? <laughs> this is, people, people are, we, we are all sufferers, but we are all also sinners. Okay? We have to understand both things. While we retain God's image, it and creation have been deeply marred by the sinful actions of our federal head, our covenantal head, Adam. Okay, Adam sinned. He was our representative. Thus, everyone that comes after him sins. So there, we can't do anything about our sinful nature because we can't replace our federal head. You can't get in a DeLorean and go back in time and give yourself a new federal head. It, it does not work. You yourself cannot get out of this system. You were born into this system. And, and what you demonstrate again and again and again is that you love it. You love it. We all do. God subjected creation to futility and bondage. It says in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Now, this is fascinating here. Who subjected the world to futility? Who subjected it? Willingly. God did. Okay? What has happened is not an accident. Not only in our heart of hearts and our flesh, it's what we wanted. Okay? But God said, yes, we're now going to subject the world to futility. None of the story has happened outside of his will. None of it has happened outside of his decree. God, as soon as we fell, declared his redemptive design for a Messiah. Right? He understood what we had done to ourselves. And he wasn't going to just send us out on the world and say, good luck. 
He was going to give us hope. He was going to give us something as we build to look forward to. What are we building for? What are we building towards? Now, I mean, we all need this, right? If you ask any mom with little children, she needs to know that the, right, there is an end goal here. Something good is going to come out of this. Anytime we endure hardship, what, what do we need in order to get through it? Hope, right? It's the joy that's set before us. You see the goal out there, and you're running towards something. Right? This is why when, when I have in the past randomly jogged, <laughs> right? I, I remember going out and jogging and like I didn't think of, I was that guy who didn't think about it. So I jog like a mile out and then I'm a mile from home. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, I should have maybe jogged in a way where the mile ended at home. <laughs> and then what I did is I said, okay, well, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave home and run home. And, I, and then what I had to do is had a hard time pacing because I'm sprinting so hard. Because I just want to get to the destination. And whenever we have a destination in mind, the, the trip is a lot easier. My kids always notice this. We go to some new place. Everybody's like, where in the world are we? Why is this taking forever? And then you get there, and then you return home, and everybody is like, wow, that was nothing. It was, that journey was easy because we know where we're going. And at the very beginning, when we delighted in breaking this world, and broke it, and God said, yes, let's subject this world to futility. I'm going to let the consequences fall upon you. In the midst of that, he had to give us a goal. He had to give us a destination. Otherwise, I, don't, I, I think Adam and Eve would have never left the garden. They couldn't have. They were given hope, and you see it right away, because Eve says, God has given me a son. She sees the promise fulfilled to her immediately, and, and I imagine she's the kind of woman who went to bed every night telling herself this. God is going to give us a son. God is going to give us a son. God is going to give us a seed to get us out of this problem. But this is, this is God is too good to simply um, give us this hope without pain. There has to be the consequences for sin. There had to be. We can't get out of that. There is pain and suffering in the world. And why? why? Because we did it to ourselves. Okay? That, that we have to wrap our minds around. But in the midst of it, there is hope. There is, there is light in the darkness. This is what um, the Geneva Bible, I, I'm going to read it. I, I, I prefer the Geneva Bible translation of this verse. This is 315. This is what it says. This is what, this is what God had to say in the midst of man's brokenness and pain. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So the first half of the verse is, is, is not the hope that I was talking about. First, it comes the pain. First, you have to understand what I'm going to do to you now because you did not obey me. And what I'm going to do is put enmity between these two families. Satan now has a family and Eve has a family. Now, it's very interesting that it's Eve he's talking to and not Adam. And the reason for that is because in the end, it was going to be Mary, a woman, who the Lord would deliver this baby through. Okay, and there's a whole lot to be said about that, but it, it, it will distract us from our purpose today. The other thing is it's very odd for God to refer to a woman having a seed. It, uh, plants have seeds, men have seeds, men plant their seed, uh, plants plant their seed, and, and the word seed is always used in reference to men. This is one of the only times that it's used in reference to a woman, and I think there is a little something there, but again, we will get out on the skinny branches if we pursue it. Okay, so Eve is told... There will be enmity now, right? She is the one who's going to raise these children. And she is told that some of them are going to, to hate God and some of them are going to love God. Some of them are going to be warring against her and some of her children will be warring on her behalf. Think, S snakes don't have babies. 
right? A man does not come from a snake. So as she's being told this, she is the one who's going to bring both lineages into the world. So she's the one, right? She's the, the, the nursing mom there with this bundle of joy in her hands. And, and she, she's going to come to find out that not all of them are going to be good. Not all of them are going to be righteous. Not all of them are going to pursue God. The history of man is a record of splits and schisms, of warfare. Primal separation from God is the source, but it's not, it didn't stay there. We separated ourselves from God by disobeying him, but in doing so, we separated man from himself. We separated man from woman. We separated man from man. We separated man from nature. It was this rending of all the things that God created. He says, don't tear asunder what I have joined together. And we took all the things that he joined together and we started ripping it apart like a little angry child. God's oracles in Genesis 3 are not simply curses. They include provisions for relief and victory as well as punishments. Though the corruptions of sin quickly infect humanity, grace is on display. Adam and Eve have children. They have seeds. And, they have, and this is new life. He said, if you eat this, you will die. So why is it that God is giving them new life? Right? From the very beginning, is, is he keeping his word or isn't he? Well, they are going to grow up and they're going to die. You're going to, have birth, you're going to give birth to little children who will grow up and they will die. But in the midst of that process, in the midst of that death, I'm going to bring hope. And, new, and every time a baby is born now, is it going to be the son of deliverance? Every time a human being is born, from, from this moment all the way until the coming of Jesus, every child at, is possibly the deliverer of mankind. There, right? So in the midst of death, there's this kind of hope. The possibility of salvation every time a woman delivers a child. And, and this is the God that we serve. This is exactly the way he does it. it he's not this angry, um, malicious God who just is furious and, and picks us up like little rag dolls and shakes us because he's angry. He allows the consequence of what we've done to, to have its effect upon us, but in the midst of us, he, he gives us a great deal of grace and life and joy. God established the enmity. And enmity is a deep-rooted hatred. We learn a little something about it from Ezekiel chapter 25. Thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy a never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. That's enmity, this soul-wrenching hatred. That's what God puts between these two households. Enmity is associated biblically with murder. Numbers 35. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, when, when he who struck the blow shall be put to death, he is a murderer. That's what enmity is. You're, you're, you're hiding, you're waiting for someone, and you, and you want to throw something at them and put them to death. You want to kill them. This is enmity. And this is what God, who is love, put between the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, this is my question. Can those two seeds have real, lasting peace? Can they have friendship? If God comes and says, you know what, because you've done this, I'm going to now put hatred between these two. Is there any friendship that those two can have? The friendship of the world is enmity with God, it says in James. The carnal mind is enmity against God, it says in Romans. 
Now, can, can, can a man who has a carnal mind and a, and a man who is delivered from the carnal mind, can they have true friendship? This is something that has confused the modern church to no end, right? Because, of course, there's neutrality, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things. It's not, either, it's not really good or bad. It just is what it is, right? Everybody has families. Everybody, the marriage, this is, we can have all kinds of unity and friendship and reconciliation around all kinds of things, can't we, with the world? That's what we think. If we just sat down and listened to them, we would have nothing but understanding and peace. If you just stopped fighting, we would have peace. Well, that's not what this says. This says there is enmity, hatred, murder, warfare between these two families. And this is the story that you are living in. It's not changed. Historically, interpreters have differed about whether her seed refers to an individual or to all of humanity, because the word is a little ambiguous. It's sometimes used in the plural form. It's sometimes used in the singular. In Genesis 28, 14, God tells Jacob, your descendants, seed, will be like the dust of the earth, and you, singular, will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. The singular you is not Jacob, but his seed. This is also the case in 3.15. They're talking about both plurals and singular. It's both in the plural and the singular. Their experience, the Eve and the, and the serpent, is shared by their offspring, just as the fallen state is. The serpent and woman are distinct from their offspring and yet covenantally attached to them. The warfare between them is the warfare between their children. There is no getting out of it. You're either on one team or the other. You're born into it. The word seed is a resourceful term for speaking of all human history while at the same time permitting a reference to a specific individual. Because what we're going to go find out later in the coming weeks is that the apostles keep referring to the seed not as plural but as one person, Jesus. So it's kind of a word that you can use it in two senses. There's going to be warfare between this family and this family. There's going to be warfare between his particular son and her particular son. Seed is a critical term, and, and it goes on to describe uh, most of the rest of Genesis. It's used 47 times in the book of Genesis. They talk a lot about seed, and it's not an accident. The patriarchal accounts explain what is only introduced in 315. The creation blessing, which we lost, is jeopardized by Adam's fall. And now what God needs to do is, is, is rescue mankind. And so as the book of Genesis goes, the book of the Old Testament goes, what you get is it funnels down narrower and narrower and narrower. You find out that it actually is from Abraham is chosen. And then from Abraham, you have the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes, right, and as the story goes, you, you, it comes to find out there is this one family that the world is going to be saved through. And, and through this one family, one person. But the seed is the thing that everyone is waiting for. This is why all throughout it, right? Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be Adam? I'm sorry, is it going to be David? Is it going to be Samuel? Who's going to be this person who comes and rescues us? Two warring families. One will, um, the son of one crushing the head of the other. Now, Jesus alluded to our verse when he indicated that the Pharisees were children of the devil. He says, you're children of the devil. Now, why? I mean, they had mothers and fathers. What does this mean? Well, he's talking about covenantally. They're part of the warring band that hates God. The Apostle John used similar imagery when he contrasted the seed and those who are of the devil in 1 uh, John chapter 3. This is heightened by his appeal to Cain's murder of righteous Abel, typologically as one who belonged to the evil one. The apostles talk this way. 
If you are opposed to Christ and you are opposed to his household, you are of the household of Satan. And what we want to do as enlightened moderns is make it seem like there's this brotherhood of mankind and we're all one and we're all in this together and the Christians are just, you know, slightly happier and more at peace. And, and it's really our job to just encourage everyone, right? Just, you're really good deep down if you just tried harder. That's not it. There, there are two warring families. The, there are people who hate God. Now, I've said this before, but I remember... I was converted at the age of 24. I remember hating God and his people. And, and there, there was an enmity in it that I did not, right, that, that I, I rarely understood, but that I see often now. If you start talking to people and they're talking about, right, the unbelievers, they talk about how unloving you are, and you see just this hatred, this anger and animosity. I know it. It exists. And I couldn't have explained it, right? I wouldn't have been like, well, you know, I hate them because Genesis 3.15. <laughs> That's never, I would have never accepted any kind of nonsense like that, you morons, right? That's what I would, I would have been like, you guys are idiots. But this warring family, you see it. You see it all throughout Scripture this in the, from the same mother. You, you have um, Esau, right? And you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have his brother, you have Ishmael. You have all these brothers coming from the same, and, and, and you see in the same household. Eli has what? He has two sons. He has Samuel, his adopted son, and, and his natural sons. And you see they are opposed to one another. And God is opposed to one half of them. This war is the war that you are all born into. Now, Genesis 3 implies hope for the human family despite the sin. We find that Jesus is, in fact, the seed of the woman. And yet, in his unique redemptive work, he also has a seed. And this is actually something that I think most people miss because we understand that the triune God, there is a father and there is a son, and we don't really think about Jesus having a seed. But he has a family. The promise is clarified in references to the Messiah. Isaiah says this very mysterious thing in in chapter 53 of his book. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He He has put him to grief. He's saying this of the Messiah. How is, I thought he, the Messiah is going to come and crush heads, right? But this is what he says to the Messiah, the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does it mean that the Messiah is going to have a seed? What does it mean that he's going to have a people? Well, the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So Jesus is a father. He is the father of a new humanity because he is the new Adam. He has a lineage. He has a household. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are now living in a household in which we are all adopted. Right? So... It's not, right, like, you know, right, this is, you get your mixed metaphors here. If you, ha- if you are naturally having a baby, you can accidentally have a baby, opposed to your will. You're like, oh, my gosh, we got pregnant, right? Nobody accidentally adopts someone, right? I, I'm not going to be driving down the road and be like, where did that adopted baby come from, right? I thought we rolled up the windows. 
Nobody just accidentally has adopted children. When you are adopted, he, the, the parents go out and get you and bring you, right? Jesus comes amongst the, the, the household of Satan and takes some of us out of that family and adopts us into his family and makes us his children. Christ finished the work needed to restore the broken humanity in his substitutionary death. It says in Romans 5, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, what is this saying? A bunch of stuff we already know, right? What is, the underlying principle is that the grace of God is greater than the damnation of Satan. Right? His love and his mercy... is is stronger than any sin, any rebellion, any brokenness that you can bring to him, right? Adam can break all of mankind through one guy. Look at all the damage he can do. Well, what Christ, who comes as a man, can do is greater than what that one man can do. He can reverse the whole thing, and not just reverse it. This is, this is the thing that so many of us have almost an unwillingness to accept. It's not that God comes and takes you and just says, okay, let's go back to Eden and start over. He takes you beyond all that. Because when Christ arose and he ascended into heaven, he takes you past Eden, right? You'll see Eden way down. Look, at there it is on the top of a mountain down there on earth, and I'm in heaven with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And and, and if you ask kids who are adopted out of orphanages, think about, right? Say say you're living in squalor in in, in sub-Sahara Africa, and you're like those little kids on the TV, Right? And, and, and the family comes from Chicago and adopts you out of that situation and takes you to Chicago. How much greater is the situation in which you're living in now in Chicago compared to the situation you're living in in sub-Saharan Africa? And we're all like, oh, yeah, that's kind of hard to compare even. Well, that's what we're talking about when you're adopted into the household of God. Your situation now is not just different, not just better. It's so much better, it's hard to quantify. Jesus establishes a new household by tearing down the old one. It's not as if he just says, oh, hey, kids, come along with me and get away from this evil man. Right? This evil father that you have, this hopelessness that you have. Come along with me. No, he tears down the old house. Right? So he's a guy who goes out and doesn't just adopt the kids. He adopts all the kids who are orphans and burns the orphanages to the ground. Mark 3.27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 4.8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. A new humanity was freed from Satan, death, and the fall, promised to Eve. A new humanity. He doesn't just say, you're going to have a baby boy. And that's what, uh, right? After that, everybody's looking for a baby boy. What was promised to her was a new humanity. There will be a new mankind. 
They will have a new federal head who's not going to, who's not going to fail and fall away and sin against me. He's promising her a new humanity. And what Jesus comes and does is establish a new humanity. This is what the angels had to say, right? The angels were put in charge of Eden. And they, and they were just like babysitters. They're like, here, we'll keep watch on the nursery, right, until the sun comes, until he comes in, in his power to take this place, to take it back from us. They're just watching over it for a time. And, this, and the, it's the angels that God sends to declare to man the coming of this son who's going to establish a new household. This is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels who were put in, in man's place because we fell come now and they're declaring that they're going to hand over possession back to the original the owners, the original stand-in for God, the original kings, because the son of promise that everyone has been waiting for has come. The war is about to end. He's going to bring peace. He has the angels declare it because the angels were the ones standing in for us. The son who is going to win is coming. The son who is going to establish a new humanity was on his way. And how is he going to establish it? It says in, in the next half of verse 315, Genesis 315, he shall break thine head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So does Jesus come and say, hey, give it back to me. I demand it. And then Satan just takes it and puts it in his hand, right? Does he come and steal it? Does he come and somehow infiltrate Satan's family and you know, commit a coup from inside? No, he comes and crushes his enemy and takes the kingdom back from him by force. The same Hebrew verb is used to uh, interpret it as break and bruise. That's usually how we understand it, right? There's usually a difference. You are going to crush his head, but he's going to bruise your heel. Well, actually, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Um, and this is why a lot of people argue that us Reformed people make too much out of this verse. But, but if you stop and you think about what's being said, Right? If, if I took a hammer and whacked somebody in the head, or if I took the same hammer and whacked somebody in the heel, what's more likely to kill them? Right? It's, it's not the strike that is the difference. The difference is where they strike. Right? A snake can only bite our heel. That's, what I love about this promise is how weak Satan ends up being. As far as he can reach is my heel, well, yeah, because now he's slithering around on the ground. Right? He, he, he's really not going to hurt you that bad. What, whereas you are going to crush his head. This is, what, this is what is being said. The, the, the victory is declared in the promise. So the whole time everyone is waiting, they're not just waiting for, like, well, I hope I'm going to save you and I'll see what I can do by sending a person. No, he, he says, I will send a person and they will win. And, 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 and the church throughout, ages, throughout that advent, waiting for the first coming of Christ, what they were waiting for is, is victory that's coming. And, and their faith was in something that was going to happen. Our faith is in something that already happened. Because he came and he won, 
right? There, there's, once he came on the scene, victory was assured. Now, this whole thing, this typology, we'll see, um, spreads itself all throughout the, the Old Testament. It, typology is not something that just helps us use the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. It helps us understand the Old Testament, too. Because can anyone think of a story in the Old Testament where someone gets their head crushed? Someone who's an enemy of God gets their head crushed? This is, this is something that comes again and again. Already in the book of Samuel, we've seen it three times. right? Already in the book of Samuel, we see Goliath is wearing armor that looks like scales, and he gets his head crushed. Well, this is what happens to God's enemies. And Calvin makes the point that um, from this promise in Genesis, he says this, according Accordingly, at the beginning, when the first promise of salvation was given to Adam, only a few slender sparks beamed forth. Additions being afterwards made, a greater degree of light began to be displayed and continued gradually to increase and shine with greater brightness until at length, all the clouds being dispersed, Christ, the son of righteousness, arose and with full refulgence illuminated all the earth. So what you see is this promise gaining speed. Right? And as God goes throughout the Old Testament, he adds to the promise and adds to the promise. Okay, you're not just going to get a son, you're going to get a land. You're not just going to get a land, you're going to get a people. And, and these people are going to get the whole world. These people are going to get the whole cosmos. You'll never have tears. And as it goes, it grows and grows and grows, like the sun rising. And, and this whole idea is right in the Bible, because Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of the Old Testament. But let's think for a moment about one of the last verses in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Listen. After everything I've said, listen, this, this framed the prophet's entire understanding of, of redemptive history. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So at the end, right, it's gone from a glimmer of hope to a a rising son of righteousness. And, and, And Malachi ends with him saying, listen, don't, very soon he will come, and very soon you will tread, he will tread down the wicked. Very soon, the people of God, right, who are now in exile and now scattered all over the world, will, because the sun comes, follow him and tread down their enemies. This is what they were yearning for, this sun, and, and this deliverance, the end of this war, this peace. This is what they were all waiting for. And this is how the apostles understood it. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.25, He, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Those who are united to Christ, the second Adam, become, have become truly human. They have, be, they have become humans, finally. They are part of the new humanity. And the reason is because the Son of Righteousness It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in uh, in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.6, the same language goes on. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. And what is it that we can see? Under the darkness of death, In the shadow of death, what is it that we can now see? We see the face of Christ. And what is it? It's righteousness. It's victory. Only one who can be bruised 
can crush the head of the enemy. So even in this first gospel proclamation, it's, it's right there in the fact that this, the Savior that's coming is going to have to suffer. Because you can only crush his head if you can actually be bruised. This is why nobody was expecting God to come. Because right, I can't get my hands around God's neck. I can't throw a rock high enough to hit him. In Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This indicates that Jesus fulfills the proto-gospel of Genesis 3.15, for it is the Messiah who is to be bruised, and yet in the bruising destroy the power of death and sin and Satan. And what does he do? Hebrews 2.15, Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, how would have this message played to those Israelite, the, the Israelites who came out of the Exodus? Oh, you mean, so, so the way that God crushed all the gods of the Egyptians and led us out, right? Led us out on dry land through the a Red Sea and delivered us all, and in doing so, totally destroyed Egypt. You mean that's what he's going to do for a whole new humanity, and, and think, now, right, people who receive this news, like Moses and Caleb, they're like, yes, now we can build, now we can fight, right? What are giants to us if we serve this God? And you see that this promise is not something that just makes them feel better, but motivates them to go out and serve God and live like God and pursue righteousness, and pursue, right? And not grow weary in doing good and not grow weary in the fight that they're in. And, and this is the message that we all need, right? This is why we go and we stop and we look at these things. Because how many of you have grown weary from the fight? How many of you are wondering, like, how long am I going to have to put up with this bondage of death? How long am I going to have to put up with this warring family? How long am I going, right? How many times do I have to spank this kid in order to drive wisdom out of their heart? It seems never ending, right? I, you know, I've thrown out my back now because I've swatted this kid so many times. I've prayed with him so many times and I'm getting nowhere. How many of you, right, go to work and you're wondering, when, when am I going to just be able to retire and be done with this? <laughs> See, this is what is, is very difficult for us to understand. Because the promises are so magnificent, right? We, we want them now. We want them now. Okay, so God's going to deliver me from pain and toil, and I won't have any more tears. Okay, so I became a Christian yesterday, so now that means I don't have any more tears, right? The whole story is meant to shape and mold us. Are you going to ultimately be defeated? No, you're not, right? And, we, and, and this, is, this is what is so frustrating. We come here on Sunday morning, we talk this way. We talk all this victorious, militant, right, martial language. And, and then by Wednesday... Right? I, I feel like, can, couldn't we have church like midweek? Can we do it again like Wednesday morning? That makes it a lot easier. Maybe then also by Thursday evening, because as the week goes, it's like I, I need it more and more. What, what, God, what God did not promise, right? I mean, think about originally in Genesis. What does he say? He, he has all of this misery that he's explaining. There's going to be enmity. You created this transgression, but I'm the one who's creating this war. You have got to learn from your experiences. You have got to learn from your mistakes. You have got to grow in wisdom, right? And, and how do we do it? How do we do it? 
by, by opening up the promises, by opening up the image of God and the glory of God, and in the midst, there is light that we carry with us. There is a sword that we carry with us. What, what I am struggling with is the fact that I'm, I'm waiting every day for all the things that we learn to suddenly, magically, you pull back the veil and we're all just in heaven. But that's not how it worked. But, w- but what we have forgotten is what we've been given in the midst of the struggle. Right? We, we forget. We still act like someday someone is going to come and save us from all of this. Someday, maybe, God will remember us. Maybe someday God will remember what he promised. And, and what, what, where we fall down on this is the fact that we've forgotten what he's already done. We're, we've forgotten what he's already doing. He, right, he suffered at our hands in the garden. And so he covered, came right, and suffered for us. To do what? So that he would suffer with us. Right? That's the promise. You're going to, I'm going to put this enmity between the two families, and I'm going to send a son who's going to suffer even as he is gaining victory. Now that story is the story you're in. You are gaining the victory even as you're suffering. And, and the glory of it is you're not alone. You're never walking through it alone. Because one who was made like us came and he suffered. And he did it so that he could unite you to himself so that no matter what you're enduring, you're enduring it with him. Right? If he doesn't, he's the ark we're hiding in. He's the rock we're clinging to. And what God does not promise is to take the waves away. What he promises is that you will stand. But you will stand because you're gripping something that cannot be shaken. You're holding on to something that will not be moved. You are holding on to something that cannot fall. We have proven that we can fall. Watch us. He has proven that he cannot. And that is the story. Right now, the people in this world, are they more like is, right, victorious Israel? Or are they more like the Israel, like what is going on with this world that God, well, I'm sorry, blasphemy. What is going on with this world that just happened by chance to exist? Right? Do the people out there need to know, listen, listen, what happened was that we broke it. And, what, and then what happened was that God fixed it. All of that separation, okay? The, all of that separation between you and me, between you and your spouse, between you and your children, between you and your neighbors, between you and your family, you and your friends, all of that separation, it, it, it rolled through all of the cosmos until it reached the cross and where God the Son was separated from God the Father and that's where it ended. And God absorbed into himself every, all of the brokenness and all of the separation that we bring into this world. It, it went flowing and rolling and rolling and rolling until it hit God and God on the cross separated and came back together undoing, right? All the separation and brokenness that we could do. And then what is it? he rends the curtain so that the Holy of Holies, now we can enter. This is the hope of, of Advent. This is the hope of Christmas. And, and, and again, we're, we're standing here 2,000 years later, forcing ourselves to have this liturgical calendar to remember a bunch of stuff that we shouldn't have forgotten. God suffered at our hands. So he came and suffered for us. We are the people. He, he said, Eve, you will have a seed. You will have a new humanity. And right there in the very beginning, he chose us. He knew who he was talking about. He's telling Eve, listen, you have got these families, the Covertails and the Lilias, right? And the Clauses and the Ebies. This, this family is coming. 
don't lose hope. Don't grow weary. The, the people of God are coming. And why? Because his son would come into this world and defeat his enemies. And, and this is what Paul said, right? This, this was Paul. He's writing to the Roman Christians. And he says, don't worry. Don't worry. The Lord God is about to tread all your enemies under his feet. Now, and, 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 and that is the hope that we need, right? Now, this, <laughs> you're either standing with him because he suffered for you and adopted you into his family and taken you up into himself as he took up the separation into himself, or you're suffering under his boot, right? And we all, that, that, that's good news to us because now we know where we stand in this whole picture. But think the whole world that's still suffering, those people still waiting in Adam to hear deliverance, right? This is why we hang lights. This is why we sing songs. This is why we go to church. This is what this whole season is about, is we're like the angels declaring the sun has come. The war is over. Peace now can exist. In Ephesians, it what? There's no longer enmity between Jew and Gentile. All of the old separation has been torn down. And, and we know that the people in this world, think, think, you know the gospel. Think how weary you're going. Think, just this last week, how weary did it get? How dark, right? How tired were you of the whole of the fight? Now, and that's you who have the gospel. What might it be like for people who don't? That's what, right? This is what I love. This is why we do all of these things. This is why we eat all this good food. This is why we're seeing all these happy songs. This is why we have parties. We're celebrating something. It's not just, right, because Coca-Cola convinced us all to do it in the 30s. That might be why people out there do it, but that's not why we do it. The sun has come. He has won. You are in him. You are the new humanity. Go. Tell it on the mountain. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your, the gospel, Lord. We thank you for tearing down the enmity that we ourselves brought into this world. We thank you, Lord, for swallowing that separation into yourself, Lord, and, and, and see, um, ending its rule and reign and terror. I pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would be strengthened, that we would look to Christ, that we would be renewed in our faith, that we would know the peace, Lord, that he has provided in our hearts, in our families, in our households, and that we would be sources of light in this dark time, that we would remember from what we have been delivered and declare that good news to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.